Searching for last-minute gifts? Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC and save 20% on select 750-milliliter bottles. That's 20% off gifts for the hard to shop for. 20% off gifts guaranteed to fit. 20% off gifts to celebrate the season. And 20% off a little gift for yourself. Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC. In stores and online now through December 21st. Please sip responsibly. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military and the other 99 percent of us we owe them online at americanveteranshow.com here's stephan tubbs welcome to this week's edition of the american veteran show and thank you so much for joining us on this sunday Thank you to those of you who send us uh, commentary. We always love to hear from you. We certainly do this program for everyone, but with a specific nod and salute to our veterans and active duty. Coming up this week on the program, just about the entire show will be focused on Afghanistan nearly one year later. Do you remember that? A C-130 taxiing down the runway of Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan, with literally hundreds of people running alongside, some trying to crawl up onto the plane itself, some sadly dying from falling off or inside of the landing gear wheel well. So much to talk about, and most importantly, the loss of our treasure, 13 men and women, almost exactly one year ago. We will talk about that straight ahead and for the rest of the program. We could not do this without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson at Boson Law, B-O-E-S-E-N Law, BosonLaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. And just as a side note, a couple of days ago, got a message from John. We're going to schedule a lunch. And again, this program literally would not be on the air without the support of John Boson, the attorney fighting along with his team just a couple of days ago, got a message and he is going to appear with us coming up in um, an episode, maybe in the next couple of months. He has now joined a major law firm. Um, He'll keep his own, but he's joining a major law firm to help veterans who are dealing with burn pit diseases. Uh, specifically those of you that perhaps were at Camp Lejeune. So this is going to be coming up in the next few editions of the program. And again, John Boson, uh, a patriot through and through, uh, bosonlaw.com or 303-999-9999. We begin, though, in El Paso County, a United States Army veteran, three combat tours in Iraq. El Paso County Sheriff's Deputy Andrew Peary was laid to rest a little less than a week ago.
celebration of life of Deputy Andrew Peary. I am very honored to be here with you today as we remember Andrew and reflect on his life. The thin blue line is the line that all peace officers stand on to protect society from evil. When the thin blue line suffers a loss, such as the one that we are here for today, it is critical that all peace officers band together to hold the strength of that line. The thin blue line rose ceremony is a physical representation of that bond, and each blue-tipped white rose represents agencies nationwide who are here to honor our fallen hero, Deputy Andrew Peary, and his family. United States veteran as well. He was 39, and two weeks ago tomorrow, responding to a call in El Paso County, almost as soon as he arrived, along with a couple of other law enforcement officials, there was gunfire, and Deputy Peary was shot and killed in the line of duty. Once again, our condolences go out to his friends, his family, the entire region, and most certainly the members of the El Paso County Sheriff's Office. Our whole Sheriff's Office is grieving with you. And we are experiencing deep pain along with you. We miss your husband. We miss your dad. We miss your son. We miss your brother so very much. And you need to know that the great shepherd, our God, is as close as your next breath and your next heartbeat. This journey that we are on together takes time for some of us. And it takes much longer for others. We will make it. But the road for ahead for all of us is bumpy. And we will experience some potholes for sure. Because the Lord is your shepherd, his goodness and unfailing love will pursue you all the days of your life. And you will live in his house forever. Thank you, Lord, for being our good shepherd. El Paso County Sheriff Bill Elder. I'm so proud of Andrew. I admire him and I'm humbled by the courage he displayed as he made the ultimate sacrifice while serving this community. Every man and woman who dons a badge understands the risks. They understand the dangers, the struggles, and the strains, and yet they boldly embrace the sacrifices they and their families endure. That's what makes law enforcement officers so special, their courage, their willingness to act in the face of danger. Throughout today's service, you will hear examples of how Andrew will be remembered. There are countless other memories. So many people were impacted by him. To Megan, I'm so very sorry. On behalf of the Sheriff's Office, we are so sorry for your loss. Your husband is a hero. He's a hero not for how he died, but for how he lived. Thank you for sharing him with the Sheriff's Office. To Matt and Amy, your dad will always be with you. He will continue to watch over you and protect you. You have inherited thousands of parents in blue who will always be here for you. You will never have to look far for anything you need. To Andrew's mother, Sandy, you and David raised an incredible man. 
and I know you are so very proud. The Sheriff's Office was blessed to have him, and your community, our community, was fortunate to have been served by your son. Thank you for instilling and nurturing his loving and caring heart. To Andrew's brothers and sister, your brother's legacy will live on through you. You have hundreds of brothers and sisters in this room and thousands more from across the state and nation who will stand beside you to ensure Andrew is never forgotten. To all the men and women of law enforcement, the words of President Woodrow Wilson remind us that you are not here merely to make a living. You are here to enable the world to live more amply. You are here to enable a greater vision with a finer spirit of hope. You are here to enrich the world and you impoverish yourself if you forget that errand. May God bless you. You too have dedicated your lives in service. Know that this community and I are proud of you. You stand the thin blue line between order and chaos. Bill Elder, the El Paso County Sheriff. Again, Deputy Andrew Peary was 39. He was actually at Fort Carson for a while in his dozen years serving our country. Three combat tours in Iraq. Rest in peace, sir, and thank you for your service. And we end this first segment, again, the rest of the program focused on Afghanistan a year later. This is heartbreaking. The radio call. And you in the military have maybe gone through this yourself. The call, and there is no response. Zebra 8, Deputy Perry. Zebra 8, Deputy Andrew Perry. Zebra 8, Deputy Andrew Perry. Negative contact from Zebra 8, Deputy Andrew Perry. Thank you for your bravery and years of service. You will not be forgotten. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. End of watch, August 7th, 2022. Now, back to The American Veteran Show. Here's Stephan Tubbs. We continue the American Veteran Show on this Sunday. And, of course, we are in that window of looking back one year when the world, not just those of us who pay attention here in our country, but literally the world watched as the debacle in Afghanistan continued. For the rest of this program, we will take a look back as well as uh, maybe over the last few days as to the debacle, the withdrawal. And the embarrassment for this country, not to mention mourning the loss of 13 of our most precious treasure. The Afghans we've been speaking to say today is a day of sadness, anger, and fear. The tumultuous end to America's longest war. Immortalized in these chaotic scenes, the Taliban's lightning-fast takeover of Afghanistan just weeks before the United States' planned military withdrawal triggered such intense panic that thousands of Afghans stormed the Kabul airport in a desperate attempt to flee the country, some even clinging to a moving U.S. military aircraft as it rose into the sky and falling to their deaths. 
It's an anguish Sakir Razai and his family live with to this day. His 17-year-old son Zabi was found among the dead, while his 19-year-old son Zaki, who had also clung to the aircraft, hasn't been seen or heard from since. Take us back to one year ago. The only memories I have are that my children's bodies were mangled and torn to pieces, he says. It's one year that I've been searching for my son. This is the calamity that I remember. But for the Taliban, today is a day of joy as hundreds fill the central Kabul square just yards from where the U.S. Embassy once stood, waving flags and chanting, God is great. Rejoicing that it's back in control of a country it once ruled from 1996 up until the 2001 Allied invasion that followed the 9-11 attacks. As the Taliban celebrates its one-year anniversary of taking over Afghanistan, make no mistake, this is a nation that remains internationally isolated, with not a single country recognizing the Taliban government. And yet, the Taliban's day-to-day focus seems to be more about controlling the lives of women. They've told them not to go to work, have said girls over the age of 12 cannot go to most formal schools, and have placed restrictions on women's freedom of movement. Akif Mahajar speaks for the Ministry of Vice and Virtue, which has issued these decrees. Islamic law permits women to travel alone for up to 48 miles without a male guardian, he says, but not any further because a woman is a creation of God that cannot endure difficult journeys. Can you at least see why people look at your government, look at your ministry with suspicion, particularly on this specific issue of women? No, he says, we don't listen to the world as far as our Islamic law prescribes. We will not yield to the world's unwarranted pressures. Despite the risk, some Afghan women continue to defy the Taliban. In a rare protest this weekend, around 40 women took to the streets of Kabul to demand their rights, chanting bread, work and freedom. But were instead met with bullets as Taliban security forces fired live rounds into the air to disperse them. One year into the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan, and the nation also remains in the grips of what the UN considers the world's worst humanitarian crisis after the Biden administration froze billions in assets from the central bank and foreign donors pulled vast amounts of funding that once made up three quarters of the nation's annual budget. Now, as the Taliban celebrates its one year in power and indeed the end of America's longest war, it has to be said that Afghanistan is a far less violent place than it used to be. But when you consider the fact that the Taliban has been stripping even the most basic of rights and that the economy remains in freefall, the future for most Afghans remains extremely bleak. Anne-Marie, Vlad. MTS, thank you. So joining us now is retired U.S. Colonel Chris Kalinda. He's also the author of the book Zero Sum Victory, What We Are Getting Wrong About War. Um, Thanks for joining us. You know, you heard Imtiaz uh, talk about uh, Afghanistan being a far less violent place. Certainly um, a reduction in violence is is partially what the Taliban uh, is is touting as one of their successes over the last year. It ignores the fact that, you know, a lot of the violence that was happening before was as a result of Taliban attacks. Um, but so the ultimate question is, it's a less violent country, but are the Afghani people safer? 
Well, it's a heartbreaking situation in Afghanistan. You've got 20 million people on the edge of starvation. You've got an economy that continues in free fall. And you know, we look back on this a, a year, you know, a year after the fall. And as from the United States standpoint, I mean, we've spent $2 trillion, over 2,300 service members uh, killed. To include six of my own uh, from my from my unit, uh, Chris Pfeiffer, Adrian Hike, Jacob Lowell, Ryan Fritchie, David Boris, and Tom Bostic, and and so I think the bigger picture question is what do we learn from this, and what do we learn from the repeated fiascos and disasters that we've seen in Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam and and some of the more recent military interventions. And that's what I write about in Zero Sum Victory. Uh, So what has history shown us about the future of Afghanistan under the Taliban rule? Well, I think we're in a dangerous situation of of this sort of doom cycle that your report earlier began to reference, where the international community has cut off the Afghanistan from funding. The Taliban really don't have the funding to be able to run a functioning government. They're reverting to what they know, which is um, in enforcing some of these uh, religious laws that they um, that they interpret. And, and then the international community is not going to give more funding, so they're going to start looking for outside sources of funding. And that's where we got into this predicament in the first place in the, in the 1990s. Some uh, Republicans from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, they're set to reveal a a scathing report on what they say are the Biden administration's failures in in the planning and executing of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. As I understand it, the administration has its own report that it's working on. But how do you feel about the actions taken by the U.S. in its withdrawing from Afghanistan? Well, the Biden administration played a bad hand poorly. Mm. And when but when you look at the the broad uh, arc of the Afghanistan war, I mean, the Taliban offered to surrender in 2001 and the Bush administration said no. Then in 2010 to 2013, and the we were involved in talks with the Taliban and I participated in those talks as the Department of Defense's representative. You know, the Taliban's demands that we had that they had for us and we had demands for them, they're all pretty modest. And yet we wouldn't put the political capital behind really getting talk started. So then you beam forward 10 years and we are left in a situation where we are creating an agreement with the Taliban that trades no troops for Taliban promises of no terrorism. So all the accountability is on their side. There's no accountability on their side. And and then after that, the Afghan government just simply buried its head in the sand and failed to prepare during the 16 months between a Doha agreement and and this, the, uh, the U.S. withdrawal. Um, whereas the Taliban were using that time very wisely, negotiating the surrender of all sorts of military commanders and, and political figures. And so that was part of what accounted for this lightning victory and then helped create this kind of military equivalent of the 2008 financial crisis where everything just sort of came crashing down. That from this past week with a report from Afghanistan, Kabul specifically, 
from CBS News. We will continue our look back. And in fact, don't be surprised if in the next couple of weeks, we still continue to talk about Afghanistan, the failed withdrawal one year later. We continue next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephan Tubbs. Thank you so much for keeping with us on this Sunday as we are midway through the American Veteran Show. Don't forget to visit our new and improved website, AmericanVeteranShow.com, as we slowly, toward the end of this year, get to the end of our Season 6. Of course, any episode that you've missed is right there at the website, AmericanVeteranShow.com. The rest of the program, we continue looking back Afghanistan one year later. This from Fox News. Since then, the country's economy has collapsed, plunging millions of people below the poverty line. Women's rights have decreased, and the security situation here remains tense. Though when you are walking through the streets of Kabul behind me, there's a sense of normalcy. There are street vendors out selling food. You can hear those horns honking behind me. There is traffic, and the Taliban patrols like a police force. Though beyond that veneer sits fear and uncertainty for the Afghan people. Remember, when U.S. forces left this country, they left behind thousands of American allies, translators and people who worked at the U.S. Embassy, and those people are terrified. We spoke with one today who spent months in a safe house. He's worried about the lives of his family, and he's stuck here in Afghanistan. And while the Taliban puts on a good face for the international community and they release statements, their words often do not match their actions. One example, they released a decree saying that women here are free, though women are not allowed out at night without a male escort. Young women particularly teenagers, aren't able to go to secondary school in most of the country, and any woman leaving their house has to be completely covered. That's the situation right now on the ground in Afghanistan. Jillian? Trey, I understand that you spoke today with a Taliban official about the situation, the security environment in particular on the ground. What did they tell you? That's right. Today Late we last talk- month, the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahri, was killed in a U.S. drone strike in Kabul. Did the Taliban know he was here? The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan made it very clear that the leadership was not aware of either his arrival nor his presence in Kabul, and they will continue to uh, conduct uh, the investigation to verify facts. But the fact of the matter remains that this was a grave violation of international law by the United States of America conducting unilateral actions inside a sovereign state. We discussed a variety of topics with this Taliban official, but what I found interesting regarding his remarks about Ayman al-Zawahri, the al-Qaeda leader who was killed last month in a U.S. drone strike here in Kabul, this official refused to even confirm that Zawahri was dead. And that is the position of the Taliban. They say the United States acted illegally by launching this drone strike in Afghanistan, and they are not confirming that Zawahri was killed in the strike. Jillian. Trey Yanks reporting from Kabul for us today. Thank you. Joining us here in Washington is Fox News strategic analyst General Jack Keane. Uh, General, thanks for being with me today. Last August, you said that this withdrawal is one of the most significant foreign policy and national security blunders in American history. Um, So as we sit here today... Has anything changed? Yeah, it's such a tragic situation and, and is so preventable. Obviously, the ec- economic destitution of the country itself, a failed state in the sense, people suffering, Taliban have returned to their draconian rule of the 1990s, denying people 
individual rights. Women cannot work. They can't go to school. They're controlling all of the culture, dress, no music in the country. They're just shutting down all the normal cultural aspirations that a nation or a people would have. And what makes it compounds that is, is the fact that, look, we went to Afghanistan to stop the Taliban from providing sanctuary to the Al-Qaeda from which the attack on the United States took place. We all know that. And what did this decision get us? It got us the Taliban in charge again, providing sanctuary to the Al-Qaeda. And Zawari's killing resurrected the fact that he's living in a Taliban house where senior Taliban leaders are in residence. And obviously, they are protecting the Al-Qaeda leader as well as his organization. The fact is, Afghanistan is a sanctuary for terrorism. The very reason we went there, the very reason we stayed there for 20 years to ensure that terrorists did not rise again, to attack the American people, and we're right back where we started. So, General, the, that tremendous counterterrorism success last week, the killing of al-Qaeda's leader, also, as you mentioned, had the effect of laying bare this stark reality, which is that the Taliban is up to the same old tricks they've always been. Uh, they're harboring terrorists once again. Did anybody in the U.S. government, in the Biden administration, have reason to believe that had changed before they executed the final phases of this withdrawal? Well, what's indisputable is the fact that people who were close to the decision when the president made that decision in April of 21 is that he was somewhat defiant. Uh, he was advised by the military, by his intelligence services and by many of his foreign policy advisors and all of the NATO nations to maintain the stalemate that we had, the status quo. It wasn't a perfect situation, far from it, but it was a stalemate where the Taliban could not take over from the government, the government could not defeat the Taliban, but because of our presence, NATO and the United States and our intelligence services, we were able to prevent the, the uh, al-Qaeda from establishing sanctuary and ISIS. So that was in U.S. national interest. Still, it was an acceptable stalemate as far as, far as many policymakers were concerned. The president thought he knew better. And he was very defiant and rejected all of their advice. And then he presented a false narrative to the American people, which I find very disturbing. He said, my choice is get out now or have to put thousands of American troops back in here to fight the Taliban and take casualties doing that. We have not been in direct combat with the Taliban since 2014. That's eight years ago. It was seven years uh, when the president made that decision. That was a completely false narrative that he presented to the American people. That wasn't the choice. And the fact that all the Europeans who were in Afghanistan had 6,000 6, troops there that they wanted to stay was very telling because they're only making that decision because it's in their national interest. It's in their interest to protect their own people. And we gave it all up. And we're back to where we were in 2001. Now, if you talk to administration sources, national security sources, which I did yesterday, they tell you that, number one, outside investigators have proven that the attack at Abbey Gate, where we lost American blood and treasure, um, could not have been prevented. They also say, look, we evacuated safely about 125,000 people. A lot of those people were relocated to the United States and to our allied countries. We helped them get medical treatment. The U.S. military has never conducted an evacuation successfully on that scale before. What do you well, say to that? Well, we're talking about an emergency evacuation that could have been prevented by the president's decision if he had made the, if he took the advice 
of his counselors and, and advisors. And, and certainly, it was very tragic that we lost those soldiers going out. We, le- we have left 80,000 people behind who still want to get out, who we recognize as being partners of the United States. And they're overshadowed in this thing, certainly. But listen, let's go back to this point about security at the airport. Mm-hmm. The Taliban and the United States military negotiated about security. The Taliban offered to the United States military the opportunity to have control of Kabul and they would not be involved in the inner city of itself. We rejected that. And obviously that would have been a little bit more than we were intending to bite off in doing that. But it would have given us the opportunity to conduct a very methodical withdrawal as opposed to this chaos that we saw and the Taliban and keep the Taliban away from the airport completely so we could vet the people more orderly who were evacuating. That would have prevented the tragedy that we had at the end, and also the follow-up tragedy that we got involved in in killing the innocent family uh, when we thought that they were terrorists. So we, Fox News learned exclusively uh, yesterday that the DOD and State Department are nearing completion of their own after-action review a year later of what happened during the withdrawal. They're going to send that to the National Security Council in a few days, as early as this coming week. What do you think is going to be in that report? Well, I hope it, it covers everything, not just the withdrawal, uh, because the, the U.S. policy decisions uh, for 20 years, uh, many of it on the Republican and Democratic administrations was misguided, and it got us to a point where the only thing that was acceptable to us was the stalemate. And I, if we go back and trace those policy decisions, I think we should be honest with ourselves of which ones were misguided and why it put us in such a difficult situation in Afghanistan after 20 years. That from Fox News. We will take our final break. And when we come back, we'll have some audio from a year ago. And of course, we pay respects to those 13 men and women who were killed in a suicide bombing in Kabul, Afghanistan, near the airport almost exactly one year ago. Glad you're with us. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs. We wrap up this week's edition of the American Veteran Show, looking back at almost exactly one year since 13 U.S. service members, men and women from across the branches, were killed near the Kabul airport at the end of August of 2021. As we talked about then and over the course of almost the past year, when we bring this topic up, we certainly first and foremost send our condolences to friends and family. And we are flat out angry that we lost 13 of our most precious treasure. And of course, to so many dozens of Afghans who were killed and U.S. service members and Afghans who were injured. This from almost one year ago, we remembered those who gave all. The majority of them under 20, only one 31 years old, and that is Marine Corps Staff Sergeant Darren Taylor Hoover from Salt Lake City, Utah. His father calling him one heck of a leader saying his son decided he wanted to join the military at a young age. Marine Corps Sergeant Johanny Rosario Picardo, 25 years old from Lawrence, Massachusetts. The state's governor calling her a Massachusetts hero gone too soon. She was one of two women killed in that suicide bombing. The other, 
Marine Sergeant Nicole G., 23 years old, from Sacramento, California. Days before her death, she was featured in a photo released by the Defense Department cradling an Afghan baby at the Kabul airport, a friend posting on Facebook that she was a light in this dark world. And we have lost Marine Corps Corporal Hunter Lopez, 22 years old, from Indio, California, the son of two local sheriff's department employees. The Sheriff's Association says he was planning to join the same department when he returned from deployment. And Marine Corps Corporal Deegan William Tyler Page, 23 years old, from Omaha, Nebraska, his family saying he had a tough outer shell and a giant heart. The family says he planned to go to trade school and possibly become an electrical lineman after his enlistment ended. And Marine Corps Lance Corporal David Espinoza from Laredo, Texas, also just 20 years old. He enlisted in the Marines after graduating from high school. His mother saying it was his calling and he died a hero. Marine Corps Corporal Humberto Sanchez, 22 years old, from Logansport, Indiana. His former principal remembering him as a popular and athletic young man who was honored to be serving his country. And Marine Lance Corporal Jared Smith from St. Charles, Missouri, was 20 years old. His father says this was something he always wanted to do, and he'd never seen a Marine Lance Corporal... Dylan Marola was on his first overseas deployment, a friend posting on a GoFundMe page. The 20-year-old from Rancho Cucamonga, California, always showed up with a smile and brought energy to everyone he was with. And Marine Lance Corporal Riley McCollum of Jackson, Wyoming, was just weeks away from becoming a father. The 20-year-old married in February on Valentine's Day. He was expecting his first child and Marine Lance Corporal Dylan Marola was on his first overseas deployment, a friend posting on a GoFundMe page. We just spoke of him, that he always showed up with a smile and brought energy to everyone he was with. And Marine Lance Corporal Kareem Nikowi was just 20 and from Norco, California. His father said he loved what he was doing. He always wanted to be a Marine and had no hesitation for him to be called to duty. He planned to make the Marines his career. And Navy Hospital Corman Naxton Soviak from Berlin Heights, Ohio, was 22. His father told a reporter that in their last FaceTime with their son, when his mother told him to be safe, he said, don't worry, Mom, my guys got me. They won't let anything happen to me. Today, she realized they all just went together. And Army Staff Sergeant Ryan Noss, the 23-year-old, was from Corytown, Tennessee, joined the Army right out of high school. This was his second deployment to Afghanistan, his grandfather calling him a motivated young man who loved his country. That from ABC and Martha Raddatz. Of course, here in our Rocky Mountain region, one of those service members, an expecting dad. He was going to be a dad for the first time. So young. From Wyoming. His child is doing fine. And we go back to last year. One of the country's best correspondents when it comes to covering the Pentagon and the Defense Department. CBS Newsman and 60 Minutes correspondent occasionally, David Martin from the Pentagon 
last year. Well, good morning. The Marines had warning that an attack was coming, even had a physical description of the suspected bomber. But in that crush of humanity outside the airport, they were unable to spot him. Major Ben Sutphin was there when the bomb went off, right there. How far away were you? Uh, I was about 15 feet. Yet he is somehow alive and able to give the first eyewitness account of the blast. We brought a, uh, a truck with a loudspeaker down to try to disperse the crowd. I was standing right by that truck when the bomb went off. The truck shielded you? I'd say so. After the suicide bomber detonated his vest, gunmen opened fire from a nearby roof. Sutphin described the actions of a Marine corporal. He's blown off his feet and still has his wits about him, shot through the shoulder, immediately recovers his weapon and puts the opposing gunman down. If they had just uh, opened fire without you firing back, what would have happened? Without a doubt, many more Marine and civilian lives would have been lost. Fifteen Marines were wounded, among them Corporal Kelsey Lanehart. Her parents allowed us to show these pictures of her recovering at Walter Reed. Another corporal with substantial blast injuries to his lungs uh, and internal organs still has enough grit and courage at at risk of his own life to, to drag another injured Marine out of harm's way. This is where it happened, about 300 yards from Abbey Gate, one of the main entrances to the airport. The Marines had set up a corridor between Abbey Gate and the Barron Hotel where British troops were located. On the day of the attack, Abbey Gate was the only way into the airport. The other two gates had been closed for a while. So what was happening is everyone, it looked like the city uh, converging on Abbey Gate. Despite intelligence warnings of an imminent attack by a terrorist group known as ISIS-K, Abbey Gate stayed open so British troops at the hotel could return to the airport. The The day of the attack, we, we had gotten probably the most direct indications of, of a threat at the Abbey Gate. Uh, and an individual to look out for. So we, we made sure that that information was passed to our Marine snipers uh, and, and to the Marines on location. How difficult would it be to pick out one person who you, who you have a description of? I would say next to impossible uh, in, in crowds of thousands, tightly packed, shoulder to shoulder, chest to chest. I mean, this was a very dense crowd. Sutphin, who was the operations officer of his battalion, said the Marines took every possible precaution armed aerial surveillance overhead at the time. We had electronic countermeasures for improvised explosive device all along that corridor that would try to eliminate uh, any, you know, electronically uh, triggered device. But the suicide bomber was not detected and the carnage was horrific. An estimated 170 Afghan civilians killed. The airport went into mourning as 13 dead Americans were sent home with honors. I'm sure you've asked yourself this in retrospect. What could you have done differently? The mission was evacuating people. We had to keep that road open. There was not a lot we could change about that situation. Uh, It was the mission, and we executed it. It was to have been their last mission. Abbey Gate was scheduled to close, and those Marines were supposed to return to the airport to board planes for the flight out. From last year, CBS correspondent David Martin at the Pentagon. We remember the 13 who are no longer with us. We remember their ultimate sacrifice, those that may be, as we speak, still injured and dealing with their injuries after one of the most embarrassing moments in United States history. I hope you have come to join us in paying respects and remembering what happened. Put political parties aside. It was a travesty.
For producer Michael Arpaio, I'm Stefan Tubbs. Have a terrific week ahead. And we pay tribute now to so many who are no longer with us. We'll talk to you next week. is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this football season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of statistics, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and an enormous selection of players and stat options are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million football fans who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/get100. And use code GET100. That's code GET100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy.